Hi, welcome to Head Start, the podcast for race directors and the business of putting on races. It's probably not an overstatement to say that volunteers are the backbone of every successful race. They are the people that make much of race day happen, and yet recruiting and managing volunteers, training them properly and retaining them for the long run, remains a constant headache for race directors of all levels of experience. Well, today we're going to try and make everyone's life a little bit easier by going over some great tips and strategies for streamlining your volunteer recruitment and fine-tuning all aspects of your volunteer management. We'll discuss tips for balancing your volunteer load across volunteer shifts, creating mega shifts with enough buffer to make sure you've got all the people you need on race day, and some tried and tested tactics to mitigate volunteer attrition. My guest for today's discussion, Tim Bradley, is the volunteer coordinator for the McCord Foundation, organizers of the Los Angeles Marathon and other marquee races. Tim has recruited and managed thousands of volunteers over the years, and as you'll see, he has developed a very specific approach to running volunteer programs based on evidence and experimentation. So stay tuned for a very interesting discussion. Before we go into all that, though, I want to give a quick shout-out to our podcast sponsors. First up, our good friends at RunSignUp, the leading all-in-one technology solution for endurance and fundraising events. More than 26,000 now in-person, virtual and hybrid events use RunSignUp's free and integrated solution to save time, grow their events and raise more. Many, many thanks to RunSignUp for having supported our efforts to bring free quality content to the race director community from the very beginning. And Joining Run Sign Up this week and for the foreseeable future, a very warm welcome to our podcast's second sponsor, RaceCheck. We are absolutely thrilled to be able to share with you listeners some of the great things RaceCheck are accomplishing for events through their RaceCheck review box over the coming weeks and how they can help you collect and showcase your participant feedback on your own website, helping you more easily convert website visitors into paying participants. We'll be hearing a bit more from these two great companies later in the podcast. But now, let's get into our volunteer management discussion with Tim Bradley. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I'm really excited today for uh, the topic we're going to be covering, recruiting and managing uh, volunteers. Super relevant for uh, most race directors and a topic that we should have tackled probably earlier in the podcast. When it comes to volunteers, I think you're a person with a huge amount of experience, both as the volunteer coordinator for the McCord Foundation and as the developer of your very own volunteer management software, Titan Volunteer. So why don't we start by um, you telling our listeners a little bit about both of those aspects of your work and sort of how they came together? Sure. Um, so I got my start in the marathon industry back in 2008. I ran a marathon. Then I became a volunteer. I really enjoyed it. And then I did operations for a while, just kind of like race weekend crew. Um, for a while, I was doing like 40 or 50 events a year, just kind of working little 5Ks. Um, and then I pivoted into volunteer management around uh, 2016. And that ended up being a really good niche. I've been here ever since. Uh, I feel like I've been able to kind of figure it out and bring some efficiencies to it, especially through website and stuff. Um, so I have multiple different clients. Uh, one of my clients is McCourt Foundation, the LA Marathon folks. I also work for like Surf City Marathon, Long Beach Marathon, Herbalife Triathlon. Um, these are local events in the Los Angeles, California area. 
And McCord Foundation, they do, I guess, Los Angeles Marathon is their marquee event. What other races do they do? They also do the Rose Bowl Half Marathon and the Santa Monica Classic. And they are a nonprofit organization um, that raises money for neurological disease research and support. Stuff like Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's. Um, So good cause, good folks. Really enjoy working with them. Yeah, awesome. And as part of those races, I guess, what sort of is like the largest volunteer force you get to manage for uh, for those races? Definitely LA Marathon. Um, they typically get um, around 20,000 finishers for the marathon, I think. So that's definitely one of the bigger ones. It requires a pretty big volunteer force. It's also a point-to-point course. So there's a lot of different water stations. And until recently, it didn't double back at all. So each of the 26 miles, you basically had a wire station and it needed a lot of volunteers. And Titan Volunteers, which is sort of the volunteer management platform you've put together. Tell us a little bit about that. So titanvolunteers.com is a volunteer management website I created. Uh, When I was first uh, getting into volunteer coordinating, I uh, was using different websites and I saw different features that I liked. Um, And I kind of also had ideas of my own features to add. So I have some experience in designing websites. I created titanvolunteers.com and now I use it for all my events and it's a huge efficiency. Um, It lets volunteer groups create their own groups, which is a big time saver. Then you're not emailing back and forth with these group leaders trying to manually assign them a shift, tracking it, how many volunteers they're going to bring in an Excel spreadsheet. It also has really nice reports. There's a detailed control panel. It has a verification letter generator. So if your volunteers are requesting verification letters, which a lot of them need for their service hours, they'll just generate it. Um, There's a way to mass add and delete shifts and edit shifts. Duplicate event, it'll change all the years on the shifts um, to the next year for you. Um, So just a lot of efficiencies. One of my main goals has been to save a lot of time. Super. And I guess other people, I mean, you've been using them for the events that you manage volunteers for, but anyone can sort of... um go on Titan Volunteers and and sign up, I guess, right? Absolutely. I started it off as my own software, and I was the main user of it, and I got most of the bugs out. And now it's ready to go. Anybody can sign up, and the first event is free. Awesome. Okay, so we have uh, so much to go through today. We're going to be touching on recruitment. We're going to be touching on volunteer management, on race day, on retaining people. So a bunch of really, really interesting areas. But I want to start us at an entry level just even before going into recruitment and all that, just to understand volunteering and sort of why people do it, right? You mentioned that you ran your first marathon in 09, then you went um, you went on to become a volunteer. Like, you've seen thousands of volunteers that you've managed. Why did you go into volunteering, and why do people generally go into volunteering for a race? Why would they give up their time for something like that? Well, my story, I just, I found it really interesting. There was just a lot of moving parts and also events, especially bigger events have a really cool vibe. It's just all this stuff coming together from out of nowhere and there's all sorts of stuff going on. So that was kind of what planted the seed for me, planted the the event bug. In general for volunteers, I've noticed there's a couple different types of volunteers, a couple different motivations. Um, there's a lot of uh, high school aged um volunteers knocking out their service hours. Um, Sometimes they're mandatory. Sometimes the service hours are more to help with college applications. It can be really competitive. There are also groups that are motivated by donations. There are individuals that are motivated by incentives like free races. Um, There are people with uh, a lot of free time that end up becoming a regular. 
and they volunteer at, at packet pickups, especially Friday where you can't get the high schoolers because they're in school. Um, I noticed that group can be pretty tight knit. Um, they make friends with the other regulars and then they kind of keep coming back to, you know, uh, see their friends and stuff. Right. So listening to that, I'm, I'm wondering, do volunteers generally tend to want to volunteer for non-profit races? Do you think like it's generally harder for for-profit races to acquire volunteers because maybe people are looking for a cause to support and all that? My personal experience is that some of the races I work for are for-profit uh, with a charity beneficiary and some are directly non-profit. And my experience has been that the uh, volunteers... Um, they don't usually ask questions about that. I think they're more concerned with just kind of getting credit for their service hours sometimes. So it hasn't been an issue, which is uh, probably a good thing because the volunteers uh, make it so that we can put on these amazing races. Indeed. So one of the uh, very important, I think, perhaps confusions around volunteers, um, the very word itself, for some people who are getting into directing races, is the cost of recruiting volunteers, keeping them happy, you know, like providing them with everything they need to do the job and some perks on top. Can you help us understand what the cost around, you know, running a volunteer program and recruiting volunteers and all of that, what sort of like is the typical cost? It's certainly not for free, is it? No, there's definitely a couple of different price points and expenses um, for a volunteer program. And they're important because that's how you recruit volunteers and that's how you, you know, give them a good enough experience to come back next year. Um, so the types of things that cost money and are expenses would be you need to purchase volunteer shirts because um, you'll pass those out when they check in and they'll make them look official during the race and they'll also be a great souvenir. You'll need some uh, volunteer water, snacks, meals for some of the shifts. Um, you definitely want to make sure you got people at your event that are volunteering, that you keep them well-fed and make sure they're not thirsty. It's a big part of the volunteer experience. Usually, you will need some kind of volunteer coordinator, unless you're trying to do that yourself, in addition to all the other things that race directors do. And if you're having trouble getting volunteers, then you'll probably also need to factor in, you'll either need a donation program, so you can make donations to volunteer groups to incentivize them that way, or you'll need to be prepared to give some free entries to probably a future race. So we're talking mostly expenses type costs, right? For the volunteers to be able to do their job and sustain themselves on race day and, you know, like wear some cool race gear. And we're also talking perhaps it's like a contribution to a cause or a donation or something like that. But are volunteers in your experience ever paid to take part in the race, to support the race? I haven't seen volunteers paid a, a salary because um, that would make them employees. I haven't seen money go directly from an organization to an individual volunteer. A lot of times what I'll see is uh, donations to groups. So you'll find a volunteer group such as like um, maybe a high school sports team or something. And you'll talk to their coach and you'll be like, hey, for every volunteer that signs in, we'll, we'll make a donation to your group for $20. And then, you know, they have 10 volunteers sign in and after the race, you count it up and you send them a check for $200 to their organization. And that avoids any issues with payroll and salary while still supporting great groups. And that goes even for uh, the kinds of like super volunteers that, that we're going to be touching on, like, you know, like the, the key people, the skilled people who, who are not like other volunteers who, you know, may be a little bit fungible. You wouldn't even pay those. Well, it depends. I mean, if you're a good enough volunteer, uh, a super volunteer, in my opinion, is basically a staff member in training. So they'll eventually make the switch, hopefully. 
Right. Okay. So seeing as we've touched on on the topic of, you know, like skill in a volunteer, when you recruit volunteers, how skilled of a job can you expect a volunteer to be able to manage? Where do you draw the line between your volunteer force and more specialized people in your team that need to be employees? Yeah, I think uh, I think it, we need to be careful to make sure we're not expecting too much of volunteers. Uh, sometimes I'll have like a race director come up to me and be like, "Hey, we need you know a, a super volunteer to do this or that complex job." And in my mind, I'm kind of like, "Hmm, maybe you should hire a staff member for that." But sometimes it can be hard to have that conversation. Um, there, there's definitely a difference. There's only so much you can expect somebody who just showed up that day. It's their first day to be able to handle. Um, I'd say the line is somewhere around, like, if you can train them with a half hour of training, then, you know, that's within their ability to handle. But if it's more complex than that, if it requires more training than that, more experience, lead up work, um, then it's time to start thinking about hiring a staff member. Right. And are there are there jobs that you would definitely, you know, never think of handing over to a volunteer, like something really critical that absolutely shouldn't be managed by volunteers. It's a good question. Um, I think uh, some of the some of the roles that you know staff take on, um, anything that requires a lot of lead up work, that probably wouldn't be a good fit for a volunteer. Anything that requires niche skills, like an announcer or something like that. Anything that requires bringing complex equipment, definitely you know couldn't get a volunteer timer, for example. Anything that requires advanced social skills. Um, if you like really need uh, a volunteer, if you really need a person that's going to make a, a great impression on your VIPs and your sponsors, then you need somebody, you know, that has like sales and relationship background. Long hours. Um, I don't think you'd be able to recruit a volunteer to work like, you know, 15 hours at a mud run, for example, like some of the staff members do there. <laughs> I think you're going to have a limit of about eight hours on what a volunteer is willing to do. Box truck driving. Um, that's kind of a gray area. I've definitely seen a couple of races try to recruit volunteers to do that. But in my opinion, uh, if I were the race director, I'd probably hire staff for that, you know. <laughs> yeah. And arriving early, um, it's, it'd be, uh, it's very difficult to get volunteers to arrive before, it, it gets harder around 5 a.m. before 5 a.m. And it's very difficult to get them to arrive before 4 a.m. Okay, super. So basically you're saying any job that would require them to show up before then, yeah, it, it's it's probably um, best handed over to a, to a team member. So. In terms of the structure of a typical volunteer team, I think you know you've worked on volunteer teams of all sizes. What is the best way to structure that? Sort of in my mind, I'm thinking teams and sub teams and team leaders and stuff like that. I think from other discussions we've had in the past that maybe you're leaning you're leaning a little bit more on on a flatter kind of structure. What is a good middle ground between the two? So I think that the website should be a flat structure. I think the website should combine as many shifts as possible. So instead of having, you know, Friday packet pickup, Friday t-shirts, Friday volunteer check-in, I think it should just be Friday expo. You get them on site. You, you keep it simple. The only directions you send them are how to get on site, where the volunteer check-in is, you give them some maps, some addresses. You get them on site, they check in, they sign in. And then you start dividing people up depending on how many volunteers you get and what areas you need them in. You walk them over to the corresponding coordinator, and then that's their assignment, and they get their training. So in my opinion, the website should be flat, and then once they get on site, then you can get some hierarchy. Um, The hierarchy would be the coordinator of the area and then the volunteers you assign them. 
Okay, so it's coordinator and then all the volunteers under him, sort of like, or her, under them in, in like a single layer? Or are we thinking sort of coordinator, then group leads, then smaller teams under that? I think that one is is still flat. Um, so if an area is complex enough, I think uh, the staff member that's in charge of that area will have staff assistance. And I think the volunteers um, end up being, uh, they get trained on the basics and then they kind of help out with the basics. And then if there's anything complex that comes up, they should have, you know, good staff support. If there's a, an upset runner, if there's something complex that comes up that is, you know, outside of what they were trained, I think that they should be able to lean on a staff member for that kind of thing. Right. And, and, and within that uh, sort of like general task area where you have a bunch of volunteers for some things like aid stations and other parts of the race, you may need at some point to have one person sort of, you know, manage a few other people. How, how do those people emerge between, you know, sort of among the volunteers that you've recruited? Are they sort of the veteran volunteers or the people who have been around before, or do they just put their hand up and say, you know, I want to be sort of like aid station leader? How does that work? So that's a good point. That's kind of an exception to, that's the one exception to what I was just talking about, um, water station captains. Water station captains, um, some races have been able to create a culture where they found some super volunteers that come back year after year that really like helping out with managing the water stations. And usually how that'll work, depending on the race, they'll either drive the truck and check in all the volunteers that manage the, the water station on race day, or someone else will drive the truck and then they'll just focus on managing the water station on race day. So that's an example, one of the few examples of a, a super volunteer that's common. And the way you find water station captains, one effective way to find water station captains that I found is in the volunteer thank you email. That's a good time to recruit um, because people just did water station volunteering and they're excited about the water station. Uh, that's a really good time to put out a call for water station captains. And then you kind of keep a list of those folks and you make sure to contact them next year. And then you have your, you know, a couple uh, one or two uh, training meetings to to give them all the training and support they need. Right. What kind of qualities would you look for in a person that would run a water station? Well, they definitely need to be very reliable because um, usually you're only going to recruit one. Um, so you need to make sure that they're motivated enough to to show up reliably at the water station on race morning. Else your course people are going to have to jump in and kind of manage the water station for them. And they need to be experienced. That's another one. Um, they need to have worked the water station at least one year before and kind of understand how it works. They need to attend the training and pay attention. You know, we give them diagrams of how to set up the water station, how much to fill up the cups and, you know, little details like that. So you actually, those kinds of people you would provide additional training to before race day. And, and, and I suspect that you'd cross your fingers that they show up because then it's very difficult to train someone else to do that, right? Yes. Um, we, for water station captains, um, for races that use that, I usually do one or two trainings depending on the race. And you can usually, you can usually tell if somebody's going to show up if they attend the, attend the trainings. Um, that's kind of a common pattern. Um, it's the, the same pattern also applies on volunteer sign-up websites. If you get a group that signs up and then their members don't sign up for the group, then you kind of know that's a flaky group. You need to follow up and get them to you know, adjust their number or cancel or sign up their members. Um, there's a strong correlation between taking the time to do something before the race, such as sign up on the website or attend the training and actually attend. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's a little bit of correlation in terms of uh, figuring out how reliable someone is. 
um, even through the sign-up process. So you know, you 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 get signals from that whether people are going to show up. And we're going to go into the into the topic of attrition later on. It's an important uh, topic. And only a couple of days ago, in our race directors hub on Facebook, the group we have there for for race directors, you know, there there was a question around like from a very disappointed race director about you know like very few people showing up, and it can be really um, tough for people to, for race directors to adjust to on race day, you know, seeing, you know, like only a fraction of people showing up. So we're going to go into that. Before that, I want to touch a little bit on your experience with recruiting volunteers, another very important topic, getting people to sign up for the race. So first things first, how early, in your opinion, should a race director look to um, open up their volunteer uh, recruitment program? All right, here's the schedule I use. 16 weeks out, you create the volunteer website. It's okay if it goes up at like 14 weeks because you spent the first two weeks emailing back and forth, working out the details. At 16 weeks, that's when you kind of start working on that. Um, you get the volunteer website up. You get a link to your volunteer sign-up website on your main race website. At 11 weeks, you send your first volunteer email blast to your list of volunteers that have attended that race before and any other leads you have for that county. And then after that, you send three or four more email blasts to your volunteer list, um, depending on how your signups go. If that's uh, going well or not going well, then you can do additional things as well. Okay, super. So yeah, I know email blasts is um, is a big thing for you, and we're going to go into that um, in a second. In terms of how people then sign up, I guess you get like individuals that you've emailed to just uh, go onto the website and sign up. How does that tie in with what you were saying earlier about you know, approaching schools and other kind of like groups of people that tend to sign up as a team. Is it like a separate stream of recruiting individuals versus groups? And and which of the two performs better in the long run in terms of reliability and effectiveness and all of that? I used to separate those two streams, but nowadays I combine them. I email blast everybody. And in my uh, email blast, I have two buttons. One says sign up to volunteer. And that takes the person to the volunteer registration website and it pre-checks the box that says I am an individual. And then the second one uh, says sign up, a, it says create a group. And then that does the same thing, except it pre-checks the box. So I want to create a group and that changes the form a little bit. Um, and that kind of, that reduces overhead because then you're only sending, you know, one email blast each time instead of two. And that works pretty well for me. And for the group, I guess, what are the advantages of signing people up as a group? in terms of your volunteers, instead of just telling the group, you know, like just having the individual sign up and telling the group, you know, go sign up uh, each and every one of you. What's the advantage of using the groups? I would guess one of them would be that maybe you have a leader who coordinates them. What, what else is there? The main advantage is load balancing, because if they're signing up, if you're waiting for their members to sign up, and then that's the first time you're seeing where they're signing up, uh, then you might not know if your shift is filling up until, you know, a week or two before the race. So I'd say that's the main advantage. And then that also helps you, um, it reduces having to track that in Excel and send a lot of emails and stuff. Because if your website only allows you to track individual signups, then some volunteer coordinators will then start tracking the groups in Excel so that they can do this load balancing. And that is a lot of extra overhead. You're emailing back and forth between the volunteer group leader and the volunteer coordinator, and you're tracking things in a spreadsheet, and you're trying to match them up to to your dashboard of your website. Um, so in my opinion, much easier to just let the website handle that. Can you explain to our listeners this concept of load balancing a little bit further? Yeah, absolutely. That's this idea that 
that you uh, want to make sure that you know your shifts are kind of evenly filled up. So a couple ways you can do this. Uh, number one, the mega shifts help a lot. Because if you have a bunch of small shifts, then you're going to have a bunch of 100% and 0% in your volunteer report. When you start combining them, then you start getting the averages. Then you can kind of look at your report and see, oh, you know, Friday packet pickup. Um, instead of, you know, 100% packet pickup, 0% shirts, it says, uh, you know, 60%. So you have a better idea of, you know, how your signups are doing for that particular shift. And another important thing is you want to be able to look at your report and go, all right, a bunch of shifts are, are, you know, doing well. They're over 50%, but some of these are under 50% and my race is in two weeks. How do I make sure that the, you know, everything gets filled up to at least a minimum level? And that is where you can do things like close your shifts that have over 50%. And that will nudge people to sign up for your shifts that need more volunteers, which is really important. Because what's the point of having a shift at, you know, a bunch of shifts at 100% if you have a bunch of shifts at 0%? (laughs) That'd create a crisis situation. It's better to have 50% across the board. Right. Because people will try and sign themselves up. And, you know, obviously when you offer some choices, they'll try to go for the shift that or you know for for the for the area that they feel you know most excited about i guess and then you could be left with gaps i think that's a super helpful tip there for people that basically if you if you which you alluded to earlier as well that if you break down your volunteering areas into smaller and smaller buckets you're basically creating silos right so you're creating containers and then you're saying that particular job is oversubscribed, but then that job, which sort of is in the similar area, is completely empty. Whereas if you say, you know, as you were saying earlier in terms of our example, you know, there's going to be one big race expo bucket or something for volunteers, then you drop everyone in there and then the law of averages takes over. Basically, you're saying, you know, I have 70% of that big job field rather than having a bunch of 100% and a bunch of 30 or zeros and stuff, right? Yes, and that avoids a situation where somebody's kind of mentally decided that they want to do t-shirts, but you have nobody for packet pickup, and then you need to, you know, convince them to change on race day. If they've signed up for a mega shift, then, you know, it helps, uh, like, like, oh, I could be assigned to anything it helps the uh, you know helps with flexibility if you're a run sign up customer listening to all this and wondering i wonder if run sign up has some kind of awesome free tool i can use to sign up volunteers and manage volunteer shifts and communications well they do run sign ups free integrated volunteer management module can help you easily sign up and communicate with your volunteers collect volunteer waivers and manage all your volunteer tasks from the comfort of your Run Sign Up Race dashboard. Additionally, the system can create reports for you, summarizing where each shift stands, making it easy to see where your biggest challenges and most urgent positions are, at a glance. And, for the most exciting part, volunteers are now included in Run Sign Up's Race Day Check-In app, so you can check in volunteers on Race Day and get them to their assignments with the same ease you manage your regular participant check-in. So. To learn more about Run Signups Volunteer Management Module and other amazing free tools, make sure to visit runsignup.com. That's runsignup.com. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Do you actually find that people like volunteers who want to come onto the site and sign up that they're particularly wedded to doing 
one shift over another and you know that even if if one shift is oversubscribed or you know you you try as you were saying earlier with a with a load balancing idea to sort of nudge them to do something else that they may just drop off and not sign up at all i get the impression that most are pretty flexible uh i only get a few emails about oh hey the shift's closed can i change to this shift can i sign up for this shift and when i get those emails i usually I usually uh, let them in to that particular shift um, because if they care enough to email about it, then you know that's probably a, a big part of their motivation. Right. And in terms of a philosophy, I think this is a really important point also for people starting out on this who are um, a little bit concerned about race day attrition and stuff. This mega shift concept also seems to, mit- to mitigate some of that, right? Because you're basically saying, I'm going to recruit as many people as I can, drop them in big buckets. And then let's see who shows up on race day. And then we split them up that way rather than saying, again, some areas are going to be fully manned and then others, you know, I'm going to be just scrambling on race day to find to find people for them. Just wrapping up on this on this distinction between individuals who sign up and groups who sign up. Do you have any idea in terms of reliability who tends to be more reliable? Would that be the, the individuals who sign up? or the groups who sort of have like a different mentality behind them? I think it goes back to what you were saying about the law averages. That's another good reason for big buckets, because then your target number of volunteers is higher, and you're more likely to get a certain minimum number. The law averages kicks in. If you have a shift of five or ten volunteers, like let's say you have a shift with a target number of five, it's possible you could get zero volunteers that show up, even if you know all the slots are filled. But if you have a, a target number of like 30, then you're definitely going to get some volunteers because you've diversified. It's not all going to be the same family of volunteers. It's not all going to be the same group of volunteers. So I think that's a really important concept. And we should also talk about um, buffers at some point because that's even more important than big buckets for ensuring that you have uh, volunteers and don't have shortfalls. So how does that work, actually? Let's get into this now. How do buffers uh, work in terms of how, how you approach things? So buffer is just a fancy word for padding your target number of volunteers on the website. Um, and the number that you should use uh, kind of depends on how your website's set up. If your website allows people to create these big groups of volunteers and reserve a bunch of spots without their members signing up, you need a bit of a bigger buffer because some of those groups are going to flake. That's what I use. On, that's what I do on my website. That's how I have it configured um, for my particular races. And I use a times two buffer. If you are not allowing groups to reserve huge numbers of spots and create their own group and stuff like that before the the race, uh, then you can use a lower buffer. If it's all individuals signing up, then you can do times uh, 1.5 or times 1.25. Right. So basically you're saying just working backwards from that, you know, when you use a buffer of two, are you sort of saying in there that you're working on the assumption of a worst case 50% no-show, something like that? Not even worst case. I'd say it's uh, pretty normal. Um, I'd say 50% of volunteers that are on the website end up not showing up um, if you have those uh, if you have those groups taking up some of those spots. Is that sort of like your typical no-show rate that you that you bake into things? 50%? Yes. Okay. Wow, that's pretty uh, pretty disappointing, I guess, for for people <laughs> starting out. For people who are not familiar with this, I think I think it it must ring true with many people who've done this. Uh, many times, but yeah, for people starting out, 50% is a big no-show rate to to have to work with. 
Yeah, and we should also talk a, a little bit at some point about uh, how to pick target numbers of volunteers. Like, let's say you have a water station. Like, how do you know how many volunteers you need for that water station? So I have a, a good rule of thumb that's worked well for me. I try to put two volunteers per table. And this works for water stations. This works for, you know, packet pickups, T-shirt areas, um, two volunteers per table. That's a good rule of thumb. Um, so you have 10 tables at your water station. Your target number of volunteers should be 20. And then with padding times two, you should have 40 slots on the website. And then even if you have a shortfall, even if you only hit 50%, then you still have one volunteer per table. And, you know, that water station will still run. The water station captain might have to do a little bit of extra work, get a little stressed out, but you'll still have a functional water station on race day. Right. And the two people, is that sort of like one person in your mind doing something specific and then the other person doing something else? Eh, I think it's just the width of the table and, <laughs> you know, right? Um, okay. like an eight foot table, you know, uh, a person can set up, you know, four foot, four feet of cups, three layers with stacking sheets. And then the it just happens to work out also for a bib pickup. Like if you have an eight foot table and two volunteers, you know, you'll have two bins of bibs. You could do three volunteers per table if you're really scrunching them in. Um, same thing for t-shirts. It's about two per table in my opinion. And since we're on the numbers, outside of um, water stations, do you have a kind of like rough rule of thumb on what size of volunteer force a race might need depending on on the race size and other other parameters like distance and stuff not really i try to boil it down to shifts so you figure out how many wire stations there are and then you ask the you know operations person how many tables are at each water station you kind of compute all the the little details and then you add them up okay we were uh, talking earlier about um, recruiting volunteers and you shared with us your timetable in terms of, you know, when you start and then you, you know, you go into the the emailing schedule. Besides emailing people, do you work any other channels in terms of recruiting volunteers like social media, like? Um, I haven't found social media to be effective, um, which kind of surprises people. But I've done it a couple times. I've had, you know, my uh, marketing coworkers at different clients and companies um, put a link on their social media, and I'll put a little tracker on the end of it to see who clicks it. And they just don't perform as well as some of the other methods. What about paid ads? Have you tried any of that? Like, you know, maybe running like a Facebook ad to volunteer people in your area or like retargeting people who already know about the race? Have you tried any of that? Does that work from from sort of evidence you may hear from others as well? I've also had bad luck with Facebook ads. I've put that on my list of things that don't really work. Um, and then I just pulled up my list right now. Some of the other things I have on here, cold calling doesn't work well at all. I've tried hiring people to cold call before. Certain volunteer recruitment websites, such as Volunteer Match, even you know throwing up an event on Craigslist or Eventbrite, have not had good luck with that. Um, these are some of the things I've kind of tried over the years, and they have made it onto my list of things that don't work particularly well. But the email blasts you were mentioning earlier, will, would those go out to volunteers and prospective volunteers, or would you also send that to people who have participated in the race in past years? So would you also target those people? Yeah, so circling back to email for a second, email is great. I really like email because you can tell tens of thousands of people about the volunteer opportunity and you barely bug them. Like a call can be really jarring. Like that, it, I mean, some people like calls, they're big relationship people, but it can be really jarring. They have to kind of pause everything they're doing, pick up. Even, even a text can be kind of higher priority than email. So email is great. You kind of plant the seed, you tell thousands of people, you barely bug them. Uh, and then the main people you want to hit with email. The main people you want to send emails to are people that have volunteered at races 
in your county before. That could be your race. That could be another race from your company, uh, like a master, a company master list for that county. That could be uh, an email trade with a fellow race production company in your county. Um, and then back to your question, it can also be productive to hit master runner lists um, with email blasts too, because then you're able to tap into like friends and family of runners. Uh, it's not going to be nearly as high a response rate as people that volunteered before, but it can be helpful. And then one thing on top of that is if you offer a free race incentive to your master runner lists, oh man, you will get a lot of signups. That is kind of the ace up my sleeve, um, back pocket kind of thing that I um, keep in mind if I am, if it's race week and we're having trouble signing up volunteers, volunteer numbers are low. I will create a special group on my on the website. And I will close all except the shifts that I really need people for. And then I will send out that free race incentive with a link to sign up for those shifts. And how does that work? Would that be like an incentive for past participants telling them, you know, you'll get a free sign up if you volunteer or if a family member volunteers? How does that work? Yes. So, yeah, anybody can volunteer. Um, anybody that clicks on the link, because at that point, you know, you're trying to you know, get volunteers. Uh, Definitely don't need to be picky about who exactly clicks the link. Um, logistically, it's in my opinion, it's best to offer a free race that's not that year, because that can get really complicated. You want to do a future race, because then you can take your time after the race. You can count up who signs in, and then you can email a code, and then they can you know sign up online. What about, uh, I mean, all of that is really great advice. If you're already at that stage where you have those mailing lists, if you don't, do you have any advice for people just starting out? Where do they begin building those lists up? Uh, that can be pretty rough. Those can be some pretty tough races if you're doing a first year race and you know you don't have a, a lot of contacts and stuff. Trades with other production companies if you're able to network and get that. Um, you can offer. You can be like, hey, can I use? Can I get an email blast on your list? Um, and once I build mine up, I'll, I'll give you a blast on mine or two or three. Um, and then another thing I do is I will hire a data miner to just go on school websites and harvest email addresses, start building the list that way. So let's, uh, let's talk about the types of uh, groups that volunteer for a second. Um, there's, there's different types of like, groups that volunteer, and these are kind of the backbone of the volunteers. I, I ran the numbers this morning, and 70% of volunteers at one of my races were in a group. And the kinds of groups in the Southern California market that sign up to volunteer at these races are high school service clubs, key clubs, Leo clubs. Those are the groups that will sign up in large numbers for free and volunteer at your races. Um, and then you can also get ROTCs and high school sports teams um, if you start offering a donation. Those, In my experience, those groups tend to be more motivated by donations. So those are the kinds of groups you want to be targeting with your data mining. You want to go on these school websites and, you know, like the sports teams, um, go look up the, the list of all the sports coaches and try to build a, a list of, you know, email addresses from that. And those, do you think for um, those kinds of groups, particularly seeing how effective uh, they end up being, would perhaps just just calling them, just, just, just a cold call, would that work better for those particular groups that picking up the phone to the coach or something? I personally haven't had good luck with cold calls. I've cold called myself before. I've hired somebody to cold call before. The ROI wasn't great. I don't recall if it was better or worse than getting email addresses. But the thing about email addresses is they're persistent. Um, so if you get a list of numbers, then to you know to tell, talk about your race, you have to call that whole list. 
But if you get email addresses, then you add them to your email sending program and you send email blasts whenever you want. And it's just a click of a button. Wrapping up on recruiting, let's touch a little bit on uh, the website itself, like the race website. How prominently should I be um, advertising my volunteer program on the on the website? And in terms of the information that I collect from volunteers that, that sign up, uh, what does that look like? What kind of information do I need to be asking people? Well, I'm a little bit biased uh, about putting... Uh putting volunteer links on race websites. Since I'm a volunteer coordinator, my advice is always going to be make that super prominent, make it just as prominent as the, the you know, runner registration button. Have a runner registration button right there and right next to it have, you know, a, a volunteer registration button. Um, but I found that what my clients usually do is they'll put it in a submenu, like, you know, race day, volunteer, and then you click on that and then they'll have uh, a page that kind of talks about volunteering and has a, a photo. Um, and then they'll put links to the volunteer registration website. And that usually works. But if you're struggling with your numbers, the more prominent you make that link, the better. Um, and the less clicks you have between the button that goes to the volunteer sign-up website and the sign-up-to-volunteer button, the better. So honestly, my personal advice, like you could probably even skip the page that's between the you know the first button link and the volunteer registration website. You can just go directly to the volunteer registration website. And uh, what was the second part of your question? And then the question is, what kind of information would you ask of people on that volunteer registration website? So that's a great question. That kind of goes back to the idea I was just talking about. You want to have as few steps between, you know, when they first visit the website and when they hit that sign up button as possible. I've noticed there's a lot of, there's some websites out there that collect a ton of information. They collect the volunteer's address. They collect the volunteer's birth date. Uh, in my opinion, you could keep it much simpler than that. Um, some of these websites, they have them make a login. Like, in my opinion, just keep it simple. You want to make it as, you want the flowchart to be as smooth for the volunteer as possible. Um, all you really need, first name, last name, email address. I have them type it twice because if they mess up their email address, I really don't have a good way to contact them. Cell phone number, which I don't use very often, but it's good to collect it for group leaders because sometimes you want to call a group leader and it can be good. Like, let's say you have a, a shift and there's a parking problem and you need to you know text all the volunteers the day they're coming to the shift that you know the you know use a different parking lot so it can be useful to have that and then their group name if they're the group leader sign the waiver parent signature sign the waiver and of course choosing their shifts and that's pretty much it that's in my opinion that's as complex as it needs to be yeah i mean that's that's a very key rule people who are who have run any kind of survey or form or anything like that before they know to follow exactly those rules which is you know have as few hurdles as possible only ask for the kinds of stuff you actually are going to need and definitely for something like that i completely agree you don't need to be putting people through like you know signing up and creating accounts and stuff like you want to make it as straightforward for people as possible now moving on to training volunteers i think you've alluded to the fact that you, with the exception of maybe some of those captains we were mentioning earlier, you don't really do super extensive training of volunteers before race day because you accept you expect to be able to train them on race day. Is that the case, or do you offer any sort of like you know you go into more formal training before race day with people? Yeah, my particular style is everything is on race day. It's kind of like first day of work. 
They show up, they check in, and they get all the training they need on site. I've seen other races and other volunteer coordinators try to email instructions and training to volunteers. Um, and I just personally have the impression that it might be information overload for them. So I try not to do that. I try to keep the volunteer instructions detailed, but focused on just getting them to the volunteer check-in. Right. So you don't use any kind of like, you know, online groups, Facebook groups, any of that stuff to basically bunch everyone together before race day so you can, you know, send them information or tell them, you know, race day is in a few days. Are we are, are you guys ready? That kind of thing. No, um, so but that that's a good segue. The the contacts I have with the volunteers before the race, they get a confirmation email when they sign up on the website. And then they get around Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of race week, they get a volunteer instructions email. Uh, which has uh, a click here to see the detailed maps and directions. And then they click that, and I make the this PDF. You can use Microsoft Word as the base, and you can kind of cut and paste maps into it, screenshots of maps, and type up everything that they need to know to get to the shift. And that's a really important uh, part of all of this. The better the directions, the less phone calls you'll get on race morning, the smoother things will go. And those are basically the two contacts I have with them before the race. And then after the race, I send a, a thank you email, which we can talk about a little bit later if you want. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get into that. Uh, so I'm just wondering, since you're collecting uh, phone numbers alongside emails. Have you thought about perhaps experimenting with text messaging in terms of sending some of those because of people generally claim that text messages have higher open rates and you know it's just right there on your phone and these days you can put anything on a text message, links and everything. Have you tried any of that perhaps? I do do text messaging sometimes for if I'm one or two weeks out from a race and I see a lot of groups that haven't signed up their members yet. I have a form on my website I can go to, and it tells me all the phone numbers of people whose groups have less than 50% signups, and it gives me mm -hmm. a little text message to cut and paste into my android.google.com or messages.google.com, and I, that will, I will send one text message to group leaders with low signups because it's important. I need to know, like, hey, is, you know, are you planning to attend or do you need to update your estimate? Because I need accurate estimates and information so that I know what shifts are short, so that I can do load balancing. Do you do that through a uh, kind of like um, text messaging service to 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 mass text everyone, or do you you know is it? Are we talking like a few reminders to specific people that you just send manually? I currently do it manually. Uh, in the future, I may switch to an automated way to do it. Um, but sending emails that don't go to spam and sending text messages. Uh, it's technically complicated. It requires you know using an API and stuff like that. Did you know that in a recent survey, 73% of responders said that reading reviews influences which races they enter? Well, RaceCheck is the largest aggregator of race reviews in the world and has collected over 40,000 race reviews for over 6,000 events globally. So how can you collect more reviews for your event and make the most of them to increase your race registrations? Well, you can start by listening to our Power of Race Reviews podcast from September 20th last year. There's plenty of tips there on growing your race reviews. And then visit organizers.racecheck.com. That's organizers with an S dot racecheck.com to download your free racecheck review box. So you can start showing all your race reviews on your website for an instant boost to your race's social proof and conversions. It really is a no-brainer. So go to organizers with an S dot racecheck.com 
and download your free race check review box today. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Moving on to um, race day, people show up. What does the uh, briefing look like? Do you just bunch everyone up in like one big space and you tell them, you know, just try to uh, get them all uh, excited about the race and then you split them up? H- how do you do it? It's a good question. So when they arrive, they sign in. Step one, please sign in. And my sign-in sheet has the shift code. I give all my shifts a code, A1, A2, A3, B1. Each letter is usually a location. Um, and then I'll also have their their group uh, their group name column. There'll be a group name column in case I'm giving donations or something and I need to track how many signed in from a group. They'll have a signature part where they uh, where, where they sign the waiver. This is a second chance to capture the waiver besides the e-waiver on the website, which is really important for legal reasons. Um, step two, what size t-shirt? And the five sizes of t-shirts I use, small, medium, large, extra large, 2X. I do not do extra small anymore. I do not do 3X. Um, step three, please wait here. We'll take you to your assignment shortly. And I'll often have like uh, snacks or food of some kind at the tent. Um, and then after that, um, back to your original question, um, there's two things you can do. You can either take them straight to where they need to go, or you can wait for a bunch of them to gather, and then you can give a, a quick orientation. Sometimes I will do this um, if a bunch of them arrive at the same time. That way they're not waiting around at the tent forever. And sometimes I will do this for packet pickups and for finish line type shifts. Um, and what I'll do is I'll gather you know, 20, 30, 40 volunteers around, and I'll, I'll go through my notes. I'll I'll give them a quick lay of the land. If it's a packet pickup, I'll be like, all right, in case you've never done a race before, the runners enter here, then they pick up their packet here, their bib, they're picking up something called a bib, it's their ticket to the race, it's the race number, they pin it on the front of their shirt, it has a timing chip, I go through all that, t-shirts, visit our vendors, merchandise, exit, so they know the flow of the event. Um, Other things I might talk about are the food plan, we'll pass out snacks. If we're too slow, feel free to take a break and visit the tent. Um, If we're having a meal, I'll mention that. Oh, hey, we're passing out, you know, tickets to go eat at this restaurant over here today for the meal, or we're ordering, you know, pizza at this time. Um, I'll let them know where the restroom is. I'll let them know what the break policy is. For my events, it's super chill. I just tell them, just make sure your spot's covered, take a quick break. It can be helpful to give an orientation like that, but if you're short on time, usually if you skip that orientation, they will also be just fine. It's more of like a volunteer experience thing. So there's a few things uh, there that I want to touch on. So you mentioned waivers. Is that like, um, you know, similar to the waiver that a participant might uh, sign? Sort of, am I using a copy of that or is it different in wording to the registration waiver that people sign? It's very similar to the registration waiver. Um, I happen to use a custom one. One of my clients um, went through an attorney and got a really nice uh, custom volunteer waiver created and gave me permission to use it. So that's the one I use, and I use it on my website. And that one is customized exactly to the volunteers, and it has some of my feedback on potential issues that that I felt needed to be mentioned. Um, so I really like that one. I think that one would be pretty bulletproof for my clients. Okay. Next thing you mentioned there was shirt sizes. And I gather from your answer there that you pre-order based on averages and then people come and pick up a shirt if if it's still around. So you don't actually ask volunteers for their shirt size before race day. Is that is that the case? Yes, that's correct. Um, so, I mean, that, that can be a touchy subject because if you're collecting all of these shirt sizes, then, you know, the volunteer feels like, oh, 
I typed in my shirt size, they should have my shirt size. But little do they know that half of the volunteers that signed up on the website aren't showing up. So even if you try to order off of the sizes that are typed into the website, uh, you're still going to have problems with sizing everybody correctly. It's still possible to run out of a size here or a size there. Um, so what I've switched to, I figured out, like we were talking about earlier, law of averages. I figured out what the averages are, um, and I just use those percentages for all my events pretty much. And then you you sort of overorder to make sure that every volunteer is going to get a, a shirt that they can wear, or you sort of order as many as you need, and then I guess some people get disappointed. Yes, so I... I take my target number, unpadded target number of volunteers. This is before the times two for the shirts. And I multiply that by 25 to 40%, depending on what my client is willing to spend on extra t-shirts. And that is how we make sure there's a buffer so that you know we have enough shirts for everybody. And you have to keep in mind when you're deciding on this buffer that because you have five sizes or however many sizes you're using, to guarantee that you don't run out of a specific size, the number of sizes you have and the number of check-ins you have, like for each one of those, that increases the buffer you need. If you offer more sizes and you want to guarantee you don't run out of one of the five sizes, you need a higher buffer than if you're just offering one size. And last thing from what you were saying there that I picked up on was check-in. So check-in generally these days is getting, I guess, a lot more technologically involved. So you get things like dynamic bib assignment and you know all kinds of stuff, right? So people do check-in in different ways. Some people have everything pre-packaged into like a little envelope that they hand out and other people just to save up on bibs and all that stuff, you know, like they use dynamic bib assignment, which is a fairly new technology. Do you find that's a hurdle of complexity that volunteers can clear even with like a 30 minute briefing or like how do you manage that yes that's a great point so in my opinion uh registration is the most complex area for a volunteer to volunteer in it has the most complex training and i think that is about at the limit of the complexity that they can handle like because you can fit a training for that into the 30 minute briefing and dynamic has made it more complicated because now they have to you know they have to they are working with a device and they have to scan certain things and you know things happen to the devices the battery gets low the you know you accidentally back out of the program you end up on the screen where you're picking the races and you pick the wrong race um so that adds complexity as well but in conclusion i think that volunteers can handle packet pickup with a good training okay great and circling back to food and drink i mean obviously you need to keep your volunteers well-fed. You want them to be happy on race day. What kinds of food and drink have you found from experience work best, both in terms of keeping volunteers happy, but also, you know, like logistically being, you know, good choices for something like this to, to distribute and keep people on their feet on race day? Um, and also in terms of amount, sort of like how do you provision for how much food and drink people will need and what types? So I do give more weight to the logistics um, because a lot of my clients are on a budget. Um, for my clients that have big budgets, um, what they'll do is they'll order catering. That's extremely expensive. That's like $10 a volunteer or something. Um, but obviously that's going to be the best food. That's going to be the least headache. Those are the kinds of companies that will you know, specially hire people 
to prepare all this food the night before, and then they'll specially hire people to drive it to your event at like you know three or four a.m. on race morning. Um, so that is kind of the top tier of service. Um, if the volunteer coordinator is in charge of it, or the race is in charge of it, and they don't want to hire a catering company, then you need to be more logistically focused. You need to be more budget focused. Um, so what I'll do is for snacks, I will go to Vons. You could also go to Costco or something like that and just buy a variety of snacks, buy some salty snacks like chips, buy some uh, like, you know, cookie, circus animal type uh, snacks. They have those uh, like Fig Newton type bars. You could buy some of those, granola bars. So that takes care of the snacks. Um, the main shifts that need snacks are the expo and packet pickup shifts. Um, Race day, you don't need as many snacks because they can the volunteers can snack on finish line food. And that's another big one. I I recommend that you tell your finish line coordinators not to try to hoard the finish line food from the volunteers, especially if it's like a long shift, if they're working a marathon or something. Because that's a really awkward situation if you have, you know, volunteers working your finish line, eight hour shift at a marathon, and they're surrounded by all this food and they're hungry. And, you know, you're, you're trying to have your staff members say, no, you can't eat this food. Like, like at the end of the day, like that's, you know, like that's you got to make sure to feed your volunteers um, for for race day. I tend to I do bring breakfast at the volunteer tent. Um, I'll do a light breakfast. Um, I'll go to Vons and I'll buy some donuts, some muffins. Um, lately, with the pandemic, I've uh, been doing individually packaged stuff like there's this uh, there's this uh, package of bear claws you can buy that's individually packaged. Um, so that can be really good. And then for expo meals, like full-on meals in addition to the snacks, um, I tend to order pizza. That's logistically and budget-wise the easiest because A, they deliver. B, it works out to like $2 per volunteer. So it can be a very economical option and a very convenient option. And then for water, um, typically just do water bottles at uh, you know start-finish expo. And at the water stations, obviously, that's taken care of. So is is A Towers that you were uh, mentioning back there the top end of how long a volunteer shift should be to keep people productive and safe and all that? In my opinion, yes. I think if you make uh, volunteer shifts longer than eight hours, you're not going to get very many signups. Um, and I try to avoid that. I only do that if uh, if I really need to, at, and uh, like for volunteer numbers reasons, and also if I've had experience. Uh, with that shift uh, being long before and it's gone all right. So a couple of my events, like, you know, the volunteers really like, you know, the finish line of a big race. Um, so they'll be fine with volunteering for eight hours. And I've also done a survey before. I did a, a survey to the volunteers. I asked them what their ideal shift length was. And I was expecting them all to say like four hours or less. And over half of them replied with four hours or more, I think. Um, so it's okay to go a little bit on the longer side like it doesn't have to be just four hours or less like you could do a six hour shift because i think a lot of these volunteers are trying to knock out service hours and they want to do it in one go um but you also have to be cognizant of that upper limit okay interesting I did, you, you see I, I don't i don't i'm not very familiar with this concept of the service hours but basically people have certain credits of hours that they they need to run through right i guess so then they say you know yeah i want to do like a five six hour shift so they can get through those yes since we are actually on that, you were mentioning earlier something about certificates or something. So basically, people also who go into that, they need to come away with some kind of certificate that they've done the hours. Can you explain that concept to us a little bit, a little bit more? 
Yes, so volunteers will sometimes need you to either sign uh, a paper um, verifying that they volunteered, and you'll put your contact information. That way, you know, their school can follow up if they're, you know, have any suspicions about it or anything. Um, uh, and another way to do it is to generate a verification letter, which is the way I choose to do it. On my website, I've, I've, I've uh, found this as a good process to automate. So I'll email out my thank you email. And in there, I'll, I'll have a link that says, click here to generate a volunteer service verification letter, or to request a letter, I should say. They'll click on the link. They'll type their name. They'll pick their shift. And it'll generate this nice letter. It has the race logo. It has uh, a screenshot of my signature. And it looks really official. They can print that out. And they're all set on their volunteer verification. OK, great. So b- before we wrap up um, race day, do you do any debriefing sessions after the race. So, you know, like just collecting feedback from people. How did it all go? Did you guys have any issues? What did you find the training insufficient for you to be able to do your job? That kind of thing. Do you do any of that? Yes. Uh, so I haven't really created a survey form before, except for that one I mentioned about the volunteer hours. But what I do do is in my in my thank you letter, I say, if you have any feedback at all, about how we can improve your experience, please email me. And something very surprising I found is that almost nobody ever emails me any feedback. So either either I'm doing all right, or maybe they're just trying to knock out hours and they're not super invested in the process. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I almost never get any feedback of any kind. Are you saying that you suspect that that might be because people don't give feedback, so they're not you know particularly keen to spend the time to right back or you think that generally things are going great probably a combination it's probably uh, a combination of things going fine to the point where you know they're not upset enough to you know you know ha- give a specific feedback about that um and also they're not super invested in the process like oh just trying to knock out some hours that'd be my my theory that's just my opinion though so you mentioned the thank you letter always very important in showing appreciation for everyone not just volunteers who help support and uh, pull a race together. Let's start with the thank you letter. What what goes into that? What do you put in the thank you letter? So my thank you email, I thank them for volunteering, of course. Um, it's got the race logo and it's got a big uh, thank you graphic in it. I put click here for a verification letter to request a verification letter. I ask them for feedback. And then I, there's, and then I will often... Um, include links to some uh, uh, other upcoming races in case they're interested in volunteering for those. Uh, and then something you can optionally add if your race needs to recruit water station captains, that is, the, in my experience, the absolute best time to recruit them in that thank you email. Do you go so far as to maybe um, publicize that, uh, you know, to show your appreciation, maybe in the local press or run a press release or something saying, you know, the Los Angeles Marathon thanks the support of X hundreds of volunteers that took part in Sunday's race, something like that? I think sometimes my marketing coworkers will, you know, put appreciation posts on social media and things like that, but it's not necessarily a part of my uh, flowchart or anything. I think the the thank you email kind of ticks that box for me because, you know, I'm reaching out to every person that volunteered and I'm sending them a thank you. And beyond that thank you email, do you do anything sort of until next year's race to stay in touch with the people who volunteered? Or is it basically, thank you very much, you know, we really appreciate you, and then you reach out to them again on the basis of the schedule you mentioned earlier, like the 16 weeks before the event, to tell them, you know, volunteering is open again for next year? 
Nope. I don't do too much off-reach in the uh, off-season, um, unless it's to tell them about a volunteer opportunity for another event, mainly because, uh, you know, I don't want to bug them too much. Um, I guess you could do something like create like a newsletter um, that just kind of talks about volunteering in general, um, but I haven't tried that. And in general, I try to ping them as little as possible. Yeah, I get that. You're, you're like a light touch person. I actually think sometimes this ends up being more effective. Sometimes people... I would fall in that category, tend to be a little bit, you know, like too eager to stay in touch and, you know, like get a feel for how the volunteers are doing after the race and thanking them and thanking them again and stuff. But you need to understand that, you know, some of them are really there for the hours, as you said, right? I mean, some of them are there for the donation and some of them probably won't appreciate being bugged uh, too often, I guess, after the race, particularly after you've showed your appreciation. Um, so Tim, I think that's, um, the end of the things that I had in mind, uh, to talk about, and there's been uh, super helpful, full of tips on, uh, all kinds of things. How can people reach out to you if they had any follow-up, if they wanted to explore further what you're doing with Titan volunteers, or, you know, if they just want to reach out and say, thank you for all the great advice you've offered in this podcast. Oh, I'd be very excited to talk to people. I almost never get to talk shop. This is just kind of stuff I've reverse engineered and figured out over the course of a couple of years. I've noticed volunteer coordinators can be kind of insular and they have their clients and they don't really talk to each other, at least in my area. So I'd love it if uh, people contacted me and just let me know like, oh, hey, I really agree with this or I disagree with this. And what do you think of this? Anyway, my name is Tim Bradley and my email address is tim at titanvolunteers.com. And of course, please feel free to check out my website, titanvolunteers.com. Awesome. And in terms of um, the stuff you do with Titan, do you also offer like yourself up as a volunteer coordinator? I guess it would be for races in South California or beyond that? Sure. I'd be willing to discuss uh, business with people and possibly working for different races. Um, Lately, I've been focusing on bigger races in Southern California. So just keep in mind that's going to be, you know, what I'm comfortable with and kind of my main focus. Um, But I'd be willing to discuss if needed. Okay, awesome. I'd like to thank you again for uh, a very um, tip-packed hour on on recruiting and managing volunteers. Thanks a lot for taking the time to uh, come onto the podcast. Thank you, Panos. And I want to thank everyone listening in, and we'll see you guys on the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode on recruiting and managing volunteers with my guest, McCord Foundation Volunteer Coordinator, Tim Bradley. You can find more resources on anything and everything related to race directing on our website, racedirectorshq.com. You can also share your questions about volunteer management or anything else in our Facebook group, Race Directors Hub. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe or leave a review on your favorite player. And also check out the podcast back catalog for more great content like this. Until our next episode, Come join the discussion alongside more than 6,000 fellow race directors in our Race Directors Hub group on Facebook. Take care and keep putting on amazing races.